0: Welcome to the Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, Live the Big Stuff podcast with New York Times bestselling author, Christine Carlson. This month we'll be focusing on kindness in an exciting Kindness Matters series. After all, kindness is strength. Kindness is compassion. Kindness is essential to long and lasting connections to our family, friends, co-workers, and all of our human relations. As a special thank you to our listeners, please visit christinecarlson.com forward slash kindness for a free download of an invigorating guided meditation by Christine, an exclusive sneak peek of Christine's meditation series, releasing soon.
1: Hi, and welcome back to the Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, Live the Big Stuff podcast. This is Christine Carlson. Well, I'm really excited to continue our Kindness Matters series, but before we begin, let's go ahead and take our golden pause. So wherever you are, just sit comfortably. Sit upright with your shoulders back. And if you're driving, as usual, just pay attention to the road and just simply use this as a centering breathing exercise. But if you can, sit comfortably with your legs uncrossed, your hands open on your lap, and just begin to breathe with me. As you breathe in through your nose, allow your chest and your belly to fully expand taking in the maximum amount of oxygen. And as you exhale, just begin to let go, begin to relax. This time, as you breathe in, breathe in golden sunlight, pure golden sunlight, all the way to the top of your head, to the tips of your fingers and your toes. Fill your heart, fill your core, fill your body with golden sunlight. And as you exhale, allow yourself to sink in deeper, relaxing deeper. This time as you breathe in, breathing in golden sunlight, just place your hand on your heart, opening your heart, activating your heart, and just spend a moment in complete gratitude. And Think of a person, a place, a thing, anything, or just this moment right here, right now, And just feel grateful. Breathing in that gratitude. Exhaling and relaxing deeper. And this time as you breathe in, breathe in love. Feeling your heart with love. Pure love. Your whole body with love. as you exhale let go of fear go of any tension you feel relaxing and letting go even deeper and in one last deep breath in breathing in golden sunlight go ahead and open your eyes yay doesn't that feel so good All right, I'm so excited to be introducing this very, very wonderful guest, and I am just so honored to have Dr. Stephen G. Post on with us. He is a researcher and public speaker on helping others benefit and talking about the benefits of those who give, how empathic care contributes to patient outcomes and professional well-being, how youth who follow the golden rule, live happier and more resilient lives, and how caregivers find meaning and hope in caring for the deeply forgetful and how positive psychology and spirituality enhance health. He is a best-selling author who has taught at the University of Chicago Medical School, Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, and Stony Brook University School of Medicine where he is founding director of the Center for Medical Humanities, Compassionate Care and Bioethics, designated as a special strength of the Stony Brook School of Medicine by the LCME Visiting Committee from 2011. He's an elected member of and the Royal Society of Medicine in London, and he is a member of the editorial board of Character, Strengths and Virtues, the Handbook and Classification of Positive Psychology. Post addressed the U.S. Congress on Volunteerism and Public Health and received the Congressional Certificate of Special Recognition for Outstanding Achievement. He was selected as the public member of the United States Medical Licensing Examination, Composite Committee, and reappointed for greatly appreciated contributions. In 2012, Post received the Pioneer Medal for Outstanding Leadership in Healthcare from the Healthcare Chaplaincy Network. He received the Kama Book Award in Medical Humanities from World Literacy in Canada and the Top-Notch Public Speaking Award from the Ohio Endowment for the Humanities. Post served as trustee of the John Templeton Foundation. A public intellectual, Post has been quoted in more than 3,000 national and international newspapers and magazines including the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, Parade Magazine, U.S. News and World Report, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, O Magazine, and Psychology Today. He has been interviewed on many television and radio shows, including ABC 2020's Giving in America, Nightline, The Daily Show, and John Stossel. Post best-selling book, The Hidden Gifts of Helping, followed by his 2007 blockbuster, with Joel Neymark, Why Good Things Happen to Good People, How to Live a Longer, Healthier, and Happier Life by the Simple Act of Giving. His writings were included in Best American Spiritual Writing, and he has written eight scholarly books on generosity and compassionate care. He has been the editor of nine others, including Altruism and Health, Perspectives from Empirical Research, and Altruism and Altruistic Love. Science, Philosophy, and Religion in Dialogue, both published by Oxford University Press. He has founded the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love, named by Sir John Templeton, who personally selected Post as president. The Institute is a freestanding nonprofit public charity that researches and distributes knowledge on the love of neighbor. Post's book, The Moral Challenge of Alzheimer's Disease, Ethical Issues from Diagnosis to Dying, was designated a medical classic of the century by the British Medical Journal, which wrote, until this pioneering work was published in 1995, the ethical aspects of of, of one of the most important illnesses of our aging populations were a neglected topic. Post is an elected member of the Medical and Scientific Advisory Board of Alzheimer's Disease International and one of several recipients of Alzheimer's Association Distinguished Service Award in recognition of personal and professional outreach to the Alzheimer's Association. Chapters on ethics issues important to people with Alzheimer's and their families. Post is the primary author of over 200 articles. Oh, my gosh. What a resume and biography, bio. I mean, this is amazing. Welcome, Stephen. I'm so honored and happy to be talking to you today
2: thank you chris you bring a lot of joy uh to your work
1: thank you thank you i do my best that's for sure i definitely love this podcast for this reason alone and i get to have these great conversations with people like you so i want to first of all thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast series kindness matters you're just a wonderful contribution to the planet and one would ask, how does someone get all of this done in their lifetime?
2: <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> just keep at it. You know, get lucky, get lucky. You know, you've got to run into the right people. Well, tell, and, me, uh,
1: tell me, like, let's begin in your journey as a young man. Like, how did you, I remember hearing this story with you while sitting with Kim Serafini, um, who introduced us, and we had that wonderful breakfast in new york or lunch i think it was lunch actually and i remember you telling me this story um about how you how you got into um you know just the work that you are clearly so passionate about doing was there was a motorcycle accident wasn't there
2: oh there was that (laughs) there was that no i mean I, i i grew up on a pretty lonely street uh on long island actually and uh Uh, I had an older brother and sister who were very close, but not very close to me, so I I would spend a lot of time uh, reading and playing with uh, little tin soldiers, and my mother would get a little worried about me, so she used to say when I was five, six years old, well, Stevie, why don't you go out and do something for someone? And there was a guy down the block. There were only four houses on Oak Neck Lane. There was an old guy named Carl Muller and his wife. And I would go there with my wagon and my colleague, Joe John. Uh, and uh, I would be there to volunteer. And Mr. Muller would give me things to do. And and uh, he had lots of nice quotes, uh, he, he he was a cigar smoker who liked Robert Frost, so he had a lot of lines from Robert Frost burned into uh, wood boards that were nailed up on his trees and varnished, um, and he would get philosophical about those, and then he was also a Presbyterian, so there'd be some New Testament passages around, and I would do chores, you know, rake the leaves, rake the driveway, clean out the gutters, do all kinds of things, and he would always give me a nickel and tell me to be careful to save it for college. Oh,
1: wow. So he was like a very early mentor.
2: <laughs> yeah, he was very, he, but he was a very important mentor. Mm-hmm. And uh, and if I could memorize a few lines from Frost or from the New Testament, he would give me an extra nickel.
1: Oh, my goodness.
2: So, so we, we, we left Oakneck Lane, uh, you know, when I was about eight or nine years old, and Mr. Muller died, but he was definitely my great mentor. Mm. And my mother, uh, Molly McGee Post, a uh, very Irish gal, uh, was wise in in saying, well, why don't you go out and do something for someone? And that was really how I got my start, realizing that there is this thing called the giver's glow and i would usually feel that life was a little more meaningful and valuable um uh that i didn't rest completely on a cosmic mistake uh when i would come home with my wagon and my rake uh and uh mr muller was uh, was a great asset
1: wow wow that just really brings me to my topic about you know, how kindness matters and how certainly Mr. Muller had a foundation of kindness where he he had to be such a kind person to, you know, embrace you that way and to teach in that way. And I wish, you know, I, I hope that those listening, you know, I think that's like one of the most beautiful stories because we can all mentor the children in our lives, whether they're our children or children up the street in the same way, and I I love that, and I I wish there were more stories like that of present day, but tell us about how that impacted your work, and where that started for you.
2: Yeah, well, you know, my, so my mom and dad were, you know, they did their best, but they were, I'll just say this, extremely heavy drinkers, and so, uh, that
1: was the Irish, that was the Irish in them, right?
2: (laughs) it, It was, it was, and there wasn't a lot of warmth in the home, and so having a you know, a non-parent mentor like Mr. Muller meant a lot. Um, by the time I was about 11 or 12 years old, I just knew I had to get off Long Island and break free. So uh, my mother uh, was willing to take me to a little private high school on the North Shore called the Stony Brook School, which still exists. Um at that time, there was no Stony Brook University. Ironically, I end up here now. Uh, but I took the SATs and and I uh, managed to do okay on it and got uh, got to St. Paul's School in Concord, New Hampshire, as a 12-year-old.
1: Oh my and, gosh, really? And,
2: and left 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 everything in the dust uh, at 12. And, uh, yeah, twelve, and I loved it up there. It was like a little bit of a it was a little bit of an overpriced orphanage, um, but it was great. And 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 I I I I got a lot of education, and and I loved um, running in the woods of New Hampshire, doing cross country, and playing ice hockey on the black ice on Turkey Pond. And I had a great teacher uh, there uh, by the name of. John Walker, uh, who I met when I was 15, and he was um, a great close associate of Martin Luther King and Benjamin Elijah Mays and all the Morehouse people, and he was an Episcopal priest, uh, married, had a couple of kids, and he was the only African American on the faculty up there. So um, uh, he was my sacred studies teacher. He taught a lot of great courses on... um, Sort of morehouse style thinking about spirituality and love and nonviolence and um, you know a lot of Gandhi thrown in there and different great minds and and uh, so he was a huge influence on on me and and um, uh, and I think in a lot of ways uh, uh you know other than mr muller um, reverend walker was was really essential. Because from that time, you know, I always figured that I would try, if I could, to stay focused on this idea of neighbor love. Uh, And there was a spiritual component. I was always reading mystics up there and a lot of Aldous Huxley, uh, you know, the perennial tradition. And I was studying hinduism and buddhism and 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 would lay up in the library and read a lot of scriptures from every imaginable tradition Mm. Uh, so and i wrote my wrote my my sixth form senior thesis uh on uh on love in the world religions uh and and so that was sort of what animated me um and and then uh um, you know, one of my one of my dorm mothers, Julie Norman, who's still alive, she lives in Vineyard Haven, um, she commented a few years ago, thinking back to me, she said, you know, you were so out of line with the sophisticated culture of St. Paul's School, uh, you know, now known a little bit more for the senior salute, I'm afraid, but, uh, <laughs> um, uh, you know, it was a lot of really sophisticated people, I mean, you know, you name it, Charlie Heckscher, Charlie Scribner, uh, John Kerry, you name it. I mean, it wow. was amazing. Wow. And uh, Gary Trudeau was a few years ahead of me. Uh, oh, my God. I mean, it was way over over my level. But I was just a simple guy, and, I, and the only thing I did of any distinction there was uh, graduated with honors in sacred studies and did a lot of, you know, I, I used to do a lot of uh, tutoring in a French-Canadian school, down Pleasant Street, and I also worked in a uh, something of a facility for older adults—not quite a nursing home, but close. That was owned by uh, the Christian Scientists. Oh wow! Because one of the homes of Mary Baker Eddy was just a couple hundred yards down the street from the entrance to St. Paul's, and it had been converted into a into a home for older adults. So you know that was basically it, and then and then I. Just decided that I didn't want to go to college, which was odd because prep schools were places that are supposed to get you ready to go to Ivy League schools and things. I, I mean, I got into Swarthmore and Reed College, and I was just not going to do what most people were doing. So that summer, I had a terrible episode. This is where things get a little unusual. Um So I had a job that summer. I was going to go to Swarthmore and I had a job that summer in the Bronx and I was going to tutor kids. And my mother and father, who didn't really give a hoot about this kind of thing, thought it was too dangerous for me to go into the Bronx. And we had a fight like you never have had before, you know. Uh, And I'm one of these people, I believe that you can never trust a guy who hasn't had a big fight with his father? Mm. It's just my thing, you know. Like you know, Chagall ran away when he was 19 to St. Petersburg and just sketched on the streets. I mean, you know, you 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 because his dad wanted to 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 to, to bottle fish. He was an acidic uh, uh, canner, basically. And my dad was just an everyday. Um, businessman who had no interest in anything I was interested in. And, and, but ultimately they told me that they weren't going to pay for my college if I insisted on going into the Bronx. So finally I relented and I said, okay, so what am I going to do this song? And my dad said, I've got just the thing. I have a friend named Bill De Bono who owns a lampshade factory in Patchogue which is, believe me, nowhere. So (laughs) I spent three weeks, and I don't mean this to be offensive, but standing between two really huge Long Island Italian women making lampshades. Oh, wow. Okay. So it, it was a lampshade factory like none other. and There was no air conditioning. And it was always hot and humid, and it was an unbelievable experience. So after three weeks of that, I was really thinking about my options. So I was I'm, out at sure. West
1: I'm Beach. sure that was the point, right? <laughs>
2: oh, yeah. So I was out at West Hampton Beach with a bunch of friends from St. Paul's, and I was sitting on the bench reading Huxley and Siddhartha, and I decided, you know, I really don't need to go to college. Uh, I'm not interested. And Things are really bad at home that night that day I had driven my dad's secondhand gray Mercedes one ninety to to work and then out to West Hampton, oh. and I was supposed to bring it home the next day, so I started driving west on the sunrise highway, and I decided you know i'm not i'm not going home i'm just driving west I had no money I had you know no clothing or anything particular. I, but I did have my classical guitar. So I drove this thing, uh, through Manhattan. I drove over the George Washington bridge for the first time in my life. And I got out there and, and there was a sign that said, I 80 West route 80 West. And I just followed it. And about, you know, four or five in the morning, uh, it was just, you know, getting a little bit light out. Uh the generator in this Mercedes, which had seen better days, um, it failed. And so the, the, all the electricity in this car went, went dead. And I just managed to get over to the side of Route 80. And what was I going to do? There were no cell phones around. There wasn't even a payphone that I could see for miles and miles. There were just farmhouses. So I got a pencil out and I wrote a note which I stuck on the windshield, and it said to the Pennsylvania State Police, please return this automobile to Henry A.B. Post, 44 Davidson Lane, West Islip, New York. Here is his phone number, 516 669 5655 from his beloved son, Stephen, who works in the lampshade factory. <laughs> that was it. Wow. And then I stuck out my thumb. And lo and behold, this big white truck came by. And a guy named Gary looked down and he said, jump in, young boy. I'm going to Chicago. And I went to Chicago. And I went out that summer to San Francisco. And I played Lobos and Tarrega in Hispanic restaurants all summer. And uh, studied Buddhism. There was a Nichiren Shoshu Buddhist community on Market Street, um, and that was kind of the center of my activities. Wow. Um, and that was pr- that was pretty much it. So that, and then, then at the end of the summer, uh, I decided, because I didn't want to get drafted, that I needed to go to college. So I called the people at Reed College in Portland, Oregon, and I said, you know, maybe I should go up there. And they said, okay, we'll make a spot for you. <clears throat> and my parents weren't going to pay for it. But uh, they gave me a scholarship. Uh, So one morning I left San Francisco. I was hitchhiking over the Golden Gate Bridge. And it was about 8 in the morning. And there was a guy on the bridge who had sort of curly blonde hair. And it was clear that he was about to jump. He was right on the edge, ready to jump. And I looked at him. I remember I'm a pretty young guy at the time. And I said, "Um, are you going to kill yourself? And he said, yeah, I'm jumping. And I said, why? And he said, well, there's no meaning in my life. And I said, well, maybe I can help you. And he looked at me and he said angrily, how can you help me? And I said, well, wait a minute. I have something in my backpack. And I pulled it out. And it was a a scroll and a little packet. And it's called a Gohon Zone. And it's a Japanese scroll that the Nichiren Shoshu Buddhists had sold me for 40 bucks. And it's supposed to give you good luck all the rest of your life. Oh, wow. But you're not allowed to give it away because then you get bad luck, you know. So, uh, and I kind of believed that and I kind of did So I said, you know what? I've got something for you. I'm, it's going to make you lucky all the rest of your life. It's a Gohon Zone and I, I, I scrolled this thing down, it's about three feet long and about a foot wide, and it's got all kinds of Japanese writing on, you know, calligraphy. Yeah. And the guy said, really? And I said, yeah, so he actually climbed down from the, from the you know, the edge of the bridge, and and I explained the gohon Zone to him, and I explained what this meant, Nab yoho Renge-kyo, and mystery, and divine universe, and ultimate oneness and all this stuff and he got really mesmerized so he said okay i'm going to take your cajon zone and give it a try so i we rolled up the cajon zone put it back in its packet he took it and he walked down the down the golden gate bridge in the mist i don't know if he survived or not long term but that was really interesting for me and then i got up to read that that night it was dusk and um there was a I was I'd never been to Reed before. It was, this is Portland, Oregon. That's and where I'm from.
1: I'm from Portland.
2: <laughs> okay, so you know the place. Yeah. So you know it's a little mischievous up there.
1: It is, very.
2: So there was a there, there was I went up on the on the front grass and there was a thin plastic blow-up tent about the size of a medium-sized house and there were, you know, uh, air compressors that were blowing this thing up. And, and you know, there was beer around and colors being projected on the walls of this and a lot of loud music. Um, so I walked up to a guy who had a black and red checked wool light jacket on. And um, he had a can of Rheingold in one hand and a cigar in the other filled with we don't know what but otherwise unspecified. And I asked him, sir, being a St. Paul's graduate, everybody's a sir, is this Reed College? Now, this guy was pretty burly. He had curly red hair, bald on the top. He smiled. Excuse me. <laughs> revealing an American flag ensconced in his upper right front tooth. Oh. He breathed in my face, which was quite devastating. And he said, quote, yeah, little buddy. And so then I walked up to the next guy I met, who's actually pretty famous now. He was a bearded kid at the time. He's the most famous Kant philosopher in America um, these days at UC Irvine. And I said, so, okay, now I know I'm going to read college. Who was that guy? And uh, Andy said, that was Ken Kesey. Oh, who would come up from the Bay Area to the Willamette River Valley to write his second book, Sometimes a Great Notion, which is about lumberjacks. And so that night I could resist. So that night, talk about love. You know, it's like, oh, seven o'clock Pacific time, so it's about 10 o'clock Eastern time. I called my mom in New York, and I said, Mom, I made it to college. And she said, Oh, my God. God, that's amazing. It's kind of a miracle, isn't it? And I said, <laughs> yeah. I said, you're not paying for it either. And then she said, well, what? how's it going? I said, well, guess what, Mom? The first person I met, not the second, not the third, but the first person I met was Ken Kesey. She had read Tom Wolfe's electric Kool-Aid acid test. So there was total silence for about three minutes. You could have heard a pin drop. Oh,
1: wow. And
2: breathlessly she said, are you okay? And I said, mom, he had no influence on me whatsoever. <laughs> and, and that was it. But I basically, you know, all that summer and all up at Reed, I, you know, I studied with Robert Bly, who was a Jungian poet, who was very interested in, you know, concepts of love and spirituality. And we got along very well. So he taught me a lot about writing. And we had these little seminars with eight or nine kids sitting around on the floor, and he would have a Stringed instrument over a turtle, and get us to think about the music of language uh, you know jobs was around sleeping on the floors at times,
1: yeah, that's taking, right, yeah,
2: you know, taking calligraphy classes and and uh, uh and 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 the science requirement he took alchemy one o one, which was a good one, and so, <laughs> so Marcel Marceau was around i mean it was kind of an interesting era. But I just kept on the love theme, and and, and um, um, uh, eventually, uh, you know, I you know I went back to New York. I uh, did a lot of science research in endocrinology and immunology and the way in which uh, destructive emotions affect the immune system. I did that for three or four years. Uh, and then I decided, okay, I'm not going to be a scientist. I'm going to, um, I'm going to do something else. So I went to the University of Chicago Divinity School. Oh wow! And that, and at that time, you know, you had these great minds who studied world spirituality. So, um, uh, Mersha uh, Eliade. Uh, Joseph Campbell was there for two years when I was there. And, oh you know, my so,
1: goodness, boy, you really hit—you really uh, hit uh, all uh, the great uh,
2: people. Joseph Kidagawa, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Mikhail Me High was writing flow, so I, I was oh able my. to work with all these people in a very eclectic way. Oh and I wrote a dissertation on the ways in which, when we when we contribute to the lives of others and love others, um, that it. Um, shuts down a lot of the destructive emotions that are stressful and hurtful over the, over time. Um, and so it was kind of a good to be good type dissertation, got the one of the dissertation award at the university of Chicago that year for that. And, uh, and then, and, and, and then they sort of caught on that I I had a background. I published actually quite a bit early on in, in immunology and pediatric endocrinology. So, they offered me an opportunity to teach at um, the medical school there. You still there?
1: Yeah. No, I'm listening. And
2: I, and I, and I did that for a couple of years and really got into uh, altruism and, uh, you know, this, again, sort of the evolutionary psychology of uh, group altruism and, and how compassion and empathy evolved. I did that and and then I went to Ann Arbor for a couple of years and was a postdoc and kept at it and went to Fordham for three years and just taught phenomenology of love in the philosophy department. That's all I did. No science. And then I got an opportunity to go to Case Western Med and I spent 20 years there in the medical school, basically um, teaching, you know, if I were total, it would be probably more than 6,000 students you know, uh, skill sets around empathic communication and how empathy benefits patient outcomes, but also benefits clinicians and students themselves in terms of meaning. I'm a big uh, Viktor Frankl guy, uh, uh, but in terms of meaning and in terms of uh, finding value in their interactions and, and, and ultimately professional flourishing. So it worked both ways. And and did all kinds of innovative things there. Uh, loved it. And 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 in 1990, I wrote. I, I was at Case Western. I wrote an article for the American Journal of Psychiatry called DSM-3R and Religion, which DSM is the diagnostic manual of the American Psychiatric Association. And I pointed out in a in a journal in the American Journal of Psychiatry that 95% of their examples of psychopathology came from spirituality, you know? So what's magical thinking? It's it's an African-American man who's singing a song. He walks with me and he talks with me, which is a classic Negro spiritual, you know? But that was a sign of magical thinking, okay? Any religious conversion was defined as dissociation, otherwise unspecified. That's like when you watch Saving Private Ryan and those guys are getting off on the beach and there's so many boats flying around that some of their minds launch off to Coney Island, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I wrote this, this 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 article. And Peter Steinfels, who was then the editor the new the religion writer for the New York Times, picked it up and he wrote a whole page long article about my article. Oh and wow. Spitzer, who was at Columbia, the psychiatrist who edited DSM, got a hold of it, and they completely redid DSM. So DSM four took out a lot of this kind of stereotypical negative stuff about about spirituality and also about altruism because the psychiatric take on altruism was that you know if you're if you're thinking about other people beyond kin beyond the near and dear it's essentially suspect okay i mean it's okay to be kind to the you know to your kids but but if it goes beyond that there's something wrong with you so they completely redid DSM. And, um, uh, and, and then a, 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 I got a call from a psychiatrist buddy. I didn't know him at the time, but named David Larson, who was at the NIH in Bethesda. And he said, you know, that's really interesting. I want to take you on a trip to meet a friend of mine of mine. So we took a trip together to Lyford Key in the Bahamas. i would never been to Lyford Key. And lo and behold, I spent a couple of days driving around in a blue Bentley that had been shipped over (laughs) from London somewhere with Sir John Templeton, who was a big investor. And uh, apparently, you know, Sir John was interested in spirituality and health and all these things, and he wanted to kind of take his fortune and, and move it in this direction to support research. So lo and behold, we left that meeting after a couple of days, and and, and by the way, there's a roundabout in Lifer Key. It's a one-way thing. And the Templeton building is up on the right. And so as the crow flies, it's easier to go against traffic to get there. So Sir John always went against traffic. He never wore seatbelts because he was a libertarian. <laughs> and all these cars would come along, and they just go off to the side because they know it was Sir John going to the Templeton building. And uh, and And his house was next to... Sean Connery's house, which said 007, Beware," and so you'd have, you know, I had an opportunity to have dinner with Sean and Sir John and all these kinds of people, and so we got a lot of money to start the National Institute for Healthcare Research. I was head of the board. David was the president, and we funded all the spirituality and health research centers from Stanford to, to you know, Harold Koenig at Duke to G. White Wish at Georgia, and we did it all. You know, and uh-huh. a lot, most of them are still going. And we sparked that whole field. And then Sir John got interested in forgiveness and gratitude and all these other themes. And I was his sort of right-hand guy along the way, helping him in all these things. And then in, in, in uh, 1999, he wanted to have a conference on empathy uh, and altruism that would bring together science and spirituality. So he, he asked me to run it for him. And I said, OK, we did it at MIT. And we had like 30 people. And 15 of them were the greatest scientists in the world on this topic. So people like Antonio Damasio, Franz Duval, the primatologist of empathy, all these people. And then we had like 15 great philosophers and theologians from all over the world. Um, and, And then we had representatives, you know, people whose lives exemplified incredible compassion and giving. So Jean Vanier... Uh, Dame Cicely Saunders, who founded the hospice movement, flew over from London with her liaison. She was eighty, and uh, and that's where we got started with this big movement. So that's a, um,
1: that's amazing. And you know, I just I want to just be sure that our audience has the opportunity to hear specifically, you know, some of the benefits of that research, where you say that. Um, if if um, youth follow the golden rule, live happier and more resilient lives, how caregivers find meaning and hope in caring for the deeply forgetful. And also how um, the research showed that when you give, what are the benefits? What are the benefits to others that give? Um, I would really love for you to just sort of highlight those before our time is up.
2: Yeah, well, a caveat on everything is that if you're involved in a profession of caregiving, your problem is balance and avoiding burnout.
1: Uh, yeah, of course.
2: But all of these studies that I'm referring to have to do with everyday people. Um, it, there, we, we did a study, uh, a national survey of volunteers in America in two, two, 2009. So 41% of, of Americans volunteered on average just 100 hours a year. And then uh, you ask them, did this make you happier? 96% say yes, happier. Did this make you feel healthier? 68% say yes, which is a big finding. Um, Did this make you feel less stressed? 78%. Uh, Did this make you sleep better? You know, 80%. Um, Did this affect your friendships? Yes, made my friendships more meaningful and deeper. Uh, did it help you deal with loss and disappointments? Yes, seventy-seven percent. Yes. So it was an amazing survey because um, it just showed how much people report benefits from small behaviors um, done with kindness toward the people around them. And you know, a hundred hours a year is just a couple of hours a week if you break it down. So it's not a big threshold. Uh, It it, it doesn't take much, but it creates a kind of a shift effect. It gets their mind off the self and the problems of the self. Neuroscience shows that when you just uh, engage in helping others, again, in relatively small but sincere ways, it completely shuts down all the neurocircuitry associated with hostility and bitterness and rumination. Mm. And it also... um, activates something called the mesolimbic pathway, which is a sort of deeply evolved emotional part of the brain that um, doles out at least one of the four happiness chemicals, dopamine, Um, uh, there's an endorphin release, Um, there is some engagement with um, um, a hormone called oxytocin, which is called the hormone of social trust, So when you look at, say, that great picture of Norman Rockwell, the golden rule, everybody's there from every background, every color, every age, and there's this look of tranquility and serenity on their face because they're just contemplating, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. There's something about being in that mental space that makes people flourish. Mm. So all these studies show that that. People are happier, um, they, 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 have, they, they tend to be uh, uh, lower in depression and anxiety, um, they find life more meaningful. They're over, if you look at some of these prospective longitudinal studies, um, they tend to be relatively free of certain kinds of stress-related physical illnesses. And on the whole, there's like eight or nine studies about this. Um, they're living a little longer. So if you look at them from like age 60 to 80 or age 70 to 85, on average, you know, the ones who self report, this is after you factor out everything, um, being engaged as, as helpers, you know, in just, you know, three, four hours a, a day generally for, or a week, I'm sorry, for the older adults. For the adolescents, it just takes an hour or two and you get all kinds of benefits. But for the older folks, you know, three, four hours a week is fine. And uh, they're living a couple of hours, uh, a couple of years longer than the non-helpers. They're much, much freer of depression. And they're a lot happier. So um, whatever age group you look at, um, there are benefits. The adolescents, the teenagers who just volunteer for an hour a week, um, they, they they have tremendous biological benefits because one of the problems with that age group right now is that they're, um, they, they, they have a sedentary tendency and they're picking up a lot of the uh, precursors of early adult onset cardiovascular disease. Uh, but the ones who just volunteer an hour a week are completely free of those biomarkers. That's so, wonderful. Um,
1: Do you have yeah. any of your favorite organizations that you like to recommend for people to volunteer at?
2: Well, if you go to volunteermatch.com, dot com, you know that's your key website because it. For, so there's a, so there's a there's an art to volunteering, and it's not just volunteering; it's informal helping too. I mean, I, there was a study that we we had done on on spouses who had lost their husband or wife after many years, and they get through bereavement and grief um, more quickly if they can informally report helping others in their environment so that came out and i got a call from this new york society of widows and widowers to do a talk i went and i gave this talk at this big hotel in new york and at the end there was time for q a there was a guy in the back and he raised his hand and he said i don't care what you say buddy i don't do nothing for nothing <laughs> uh, and i said it wasn't i knew i wasn't in cleveland anymore but uh, <clears throat> But you know the thing is i mean people limit themselves because they think about tit for tat and reciprocal gain and calculations and so forth but actually you don't need to worry about that at all because the benefits of just being in that frame of being and mind and action are tremendous
1: yeah so what uh, you're saying is even if you're just overall like your your the way you live is just generally helpful to others that's that's you receive a lot of the same benefits
2: you should. You're, you're sure to. So you don't have to. You don't have to calculate. You don't have to believe the the idea that somehow if you just are kind and generous, you're a sucker.
1: No. <laughs> Certainly, that's not what we're hearing in this podcast series. <laughs> <laughs> well, Stephen, our time is up, and I just want to thank you so much. I think I could just listen to your stories and. You know, spend a whole other hour with you, and I'm sure everyone listening feels the same way. And again, your work is profound. You've made such an incredible impact. What are you working on right now? What would you like to share with the folks <clears throat> listening? Do you have a website? Where would you like to send people? Yeah, to
2: Yeah, I've got a, I got a couple more? websites. Um, I mean, the, the institute that I founded with Sir John uh, is called the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love. Might as well be bold. And so that's www.unlimitedloveinstitute.org. Okay. And um, there's this a www.stephen with And then the, the best selling book we had, Why Good Things Happen to Good People, is at www.whygoodthingshappen.com. And all the empathy and compassion training we do here at Stony Brook with all these medical students and everybody is at uh, stonybrook.edu/slash bioethics. So, those are places to, to look at. Um, yeah, so I've just been lucky. I've run into the right people in life, and uh, I don't claim to have made my life, I claim to have been on a journey. Mm. And as Joseph Campbell says, you know, when you're on a journey, you have no idea who you're going to encounter. You've got no idea at all. It could be anybody. But I've just been um, extremely fortunate, or some would call it synchronicity, because I'm not sure there are any accidents. But there's a lot of synchronicity in my life, and somehow, yeah, things just came together. And writing writing a book uh, called... um, um, the oneness within the many.
1: Oh, nice. Which is
2: metaphysical, and thinking about a book. My, uh, someone wants me to write a book called the giver's glow, which I'm thinking about. I'm going to do some more book writing this year and keep teaching medical students and, and, you know, stay, stay happy.
1: Yay. Well, thank you so much, Steven. It's been so wonderful to, um, share this hour with you, and I, and I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much.
2: Thanks, Chris. Take care of yourself, okay? You You
1: do. look well. Oh, thank you. And for everyone listening, come back again, and maybe even consider as your random act of kindness today sharing this podcast with others. I think you'll find the inspiration, your inspiration will rise, and let's just face it, I I mean, I've always said, I think it's so much easier to be a kind person than to be a mean, angry person, and... As you've just heard from Dr. Stephen G. Post, it's to your benefit to be so. So thank you so much and come back again.
2: It's an honor. My motto for the year is, those who make no mistakes make nothing.
0: (laughs) Thanks for listening to Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, Live the Big Stuff with Christine Carlson. Christine invites you to join her in a series of guided meditations coming soon to christinecarlson.com. As a thank you for joining us today, the first meditation is yours free. Just visit christinecarlson.com forward slash kindness to download it now.